Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we look to Scripture this morning on this Easter Sunday, we want to look to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to, to turn there. As you're doing so, I wonder if you were to be asked by someone who didn't know what Easter was all about, what words would you use to describe Easter? My guess is you would use words like joy, celebration, hope, new life. But for Jesus' disciples, the first Easter Sunday, the morning, the afternoon, even into the evening, was not full of joy and celebration. Words like doubt, confusion, or fear would be the words they might use to describe how they felt. The Gospel of Luke even tells us that throughout the day, the rumor that Jesus was alive seemed to them like an idle tale, and they were still fearful of what might happen to them. In fact, it took the presence of the risen Jesus himself showing up in the flesh for them to begin to experience the joy and the peace and the thrill of hope that we think of when we think of Easter. But it's important for us to understand that the story of Easter is not just a story about joy and hope and peace. The resurrection of Jesus, which happened in history, is still for us today the key to joy and hope and peace, just as it was for the disciples 2,000 years ago. And that's what I want us to see from the Gospel of John this morning. And so if you're in John chapter 20, I encourage you to read along with me or listen as I read, beginning in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Here's God's word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, how we thank you for your word that you have given to us by your spirit. We thank you for these words this morning, and I pray that they would encourage our hearts and draw us near to Jesus, that we might glorify your name. We pray it for his sake. Amen. I'm not sure if you have noticed, as I have, that children's books tend to stick with you with a power that other books don't always do. There are some books 30 years later that I still remember with a particular vividness. There was one of them that was titled Five Minutes Peace. In this book, Mrs. Large the Elephant comes downstairs to survey her three young children eating breakfast. And the book sums up the scene with these words. It was not a pleasant sight. Of course, as a six-year-old, I thought that the hyperbole of the illustrations was hilarious, not having the slightest idea of how true to reality those pictures could be for three young children at breakfast time. But in response to the picture, Mrs. Large grabs her breakfast on a tray, grabs the newspaper, and heads for the bathtub, telling her children, I need five minutes peace. When the book continues by tracing the cheerful exploits of her energetic children, ending with all three of them jumping in the bathtub with Mrs. Large, demonstrating poignantly that in this life, even five minutes' peace is hard to come by. Of course, that's true for a busy mother, but add in the stresses, the griefs, the frustrations, the unexpected and unwelcome disappointments, even tragedies in life, And peace becomes even more elusive. Step into the lives of Jesus' disciples on that first Easter Sunday, and it must have seemed like peace was the most unlikely possibility in the world. But into their confusion and their doubt and their fear steps Jesus, risen from the dead. And the main point of the passage we read this morning is that the resurrected Jesus offers real peace to his disciples and to anyone who will believe in his name. And to see this this morning, I want us to look at the offer of peace from Jesus. I want us to look at the prerequisite for peace. And then finally, I want to look at our response to peace. But let's begin by looking at Jesus' offer of peace. We see it three times in this passage. The disciples are in a room together and the doors are locked. When Jesus shows up among them. Now this is no magic trick. This is the power of God and the reality of a resurrected spiritual body. But you can imagine what the disciples' first thought probably was when Jesus shows up through the locked doors. It's a ghost. Which is why in the other gospel accounts it records how Jesus said, Give me some food. Let me eat. A ghost does not eat. Here, touch my hands. So Jesus' first words were very needed when he says, peace be with you. Now what exactly did Jesus mean when he began by saying, peace be with you? 
Some might say, well, these were just words of greeting. It was a typical evening greeting to say, peace be with you. But that's not the case at all. This was not just a social greeting. These words were used intentionally, and they are significant. Jesus was announcing two results of his resurrection to his people in these words. He was announcing peace with God. I mean, just consider what had happened the last time the disciples saw Jesus. The last time the disciples saw Jesus, they fled. I think Mark chapter 14, verse 50 puts it succinctly. They all left him and fled. This from the group that had vehemently declared that they would never abandon him. And of course, Peter took it a step further, even denying Jesus three times. So you can imagine what might have been going on in the disciples' minds. If this is Jesus risen from the dead, what is he thinking about us right now? After all, you and I know what might be going through our minds if someone had just abandoned us in our greatest hour of need, and then they show up cheerfully greeting us. We might have some choice words for them. So what is Jesus thinking about them? They had sinned against him. They had abandoned God's anointed one. They were guilty before God and before his son. If this is Jesus and at his weakest hour they abandoned him, what is his attitude toward them now? But Jesus greets them with those words, peace be with you. Jesus is announcing that their sin and their guilt is forgiven. But he's not just forgiving that abandonment, that fleeing on the night that he was betrayed. He is forgiving all of their sins and the guilt of their whole life. As Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14 puts it, God has forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so their sin does not stand between them and their holy God anymore. The barrier is removed. They are welcomed. They are reconciled. They are at peace with Jesus and through Jesus at peace with their heavenly father. This offer, of course, is not unique to the disciples. Every one of us, too, has turned from God. We have lived life our way based on our wisdom, pursuing our goals, and so spurned the worship and the obedience that God deserves The sin of our hearts has eked out in words of anger and acts of disobedience and attitudes of selfishness and discontentment, and our guilt stands before God. Our sin would make God's distance from us and rejection of us not only understandable, but just. But Jesus announces, peace be with you. Well, what gives Jesus the right to announce this kind of peace? It's his death and his resurrection. Because in his death, Jesus took the punishment we deserved for our sin. Like a man who steps in and pays the fine that his friend had incurred for breaking the law, Jesus steps in and pays not just a fine, but the penalty of death that our sins deserved. But his death alone was not enough. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, we would not have hope of new life. His resurrection was God's declaration that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice and so would welcome as forgiven and innocent in his sight all those who would come to him through faith in Jesus, trusting in his death 
on their behalf. So the Apostle Paul could put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He said, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is, declared innocent in his sight, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus announces peace with God, but his offer is not only peace with God, it also includes the peace of God. That is God's gift of peace in our hearts. And once again, the disciples so desperately needed that. You see it right from the first verse of our passage. They've locked themselves in the upper room, scared of what might happen to them. And no wonder, in the last three days, they'd seen their hopes dashed, their friend that they had followed put to death, the Jews looking to stamp out any influence of Jesus. And to make matters worse, throughout this Sunday, the Jews had been spreading a rumor that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body and were trying to put a hoax over on everyone in Jerusalem. But into this fear and this doubt, Jesus comes to his disciples and offers them peace. Now, by peace in their hearts, I'm not talking about a a new age type of calmness. I'm not talking about some unrealistic expectation that suffering and difficulty will be gone. In fact, Jesus promises that suffering will continue. What I mean by peace in our hearts or the peace of God is a settled, unthreatened rest that comes from knowing that whatever happens, all will be well. Now, how can I say that? How do we know that all will be well? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. He has proven that God's power is infinite even over death itself. And he has proven God's love for us and that he would send his own son to death for our sake. It is because of God's power and God's love demonstrated on the cross and in the resurrection that we can have that peace in our hearts. After all, imagine that you were facing surgery, a surgery for a significant issue. It was a life and death matter. You might be a bit nervous. But imagine that your diagnosing doctor and the one who would do the surgery himself was your father. He will not say, Uh, it's no big deal. Stop whining about the surgery. No, he will look at you and say, don't worry. I love you. I will take care of you. In that context, you might have nerves. You might experience some pain, but you are in skilled hands who love you. And so you will have a confidence and a peace. But even that example, of course, pales in comparison because any surgeon might mess up But we are talking about God who is infinite in his power. We are talking about the God who has sent his own son to death for our our sake and so proven his love for us. We are talking about the God whom Paul again talks about in Romans chapter 8. When Paul writes, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For as he goes on to say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. And as he concludes, so then nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God, who is in perfect control and sovereign over all things, will work his will and our good through all things. And if God was willing to give his own son up to death for our sake, is there any doubt of his love for us and his care for us? And so on that Easter evening, as Jesus came, he could offer peace, a settled, unthreatened rest of heart and mind because of what he had done on the cross and in his resurrection. So here Jesus comes to offer peace, peace with God and the peace of God. But this peace is not automatically yours. Our passage tells us this morning that there is a prerequisite to having this peace, a response that is needed for us to find this peace from God. And we see this in the second half of our story, verses 24 to 29. Because here we come to the story of Thomas. Now, Thomas was a renowned pessimist. Of course, like every pessimist, Thomas assures us he was only a realist. That's what every pessimist believes. And so when the other ten disciples said, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas said in the unauthorized, embellished version, look, I know we're all disappointed. I know we're all grieving here, but I'm not falling for that. Unless I put my finger in the nail holes of his hands and my hand in his side, I will never believe that Jesus is alive. So you notice that Thomas does not have resurrection peace. But a week later, Jesus came to the disciples again. And what does he announce yet again? Peace be with you. And then he looks right at Thomas. And he says, Thomas, put your finger in the holes in my hand. Put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And what does Thomas say? Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. You see in his response here, one who has believed and now has peace. And that's not only true for Thomas, it's true for us as well. In fact, it is with people like us in mind that Jesus said, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now it's important, I think, for us to stop and clarify what Jesus meant when he calls us to believe. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? See, there's both a factual part of belief and a personal aspect to belief. The factual part calls us to assent to the historical fact that Jesus was not just a good man, but the Son of God, who really, in history, died on the cross for our sins, but whom God raised alive again on Easter morning. The factual part of believing calls upon us and says, do you believe that in history, Jesus, the Son of God, died and was risen again? To put it as John puts it here in verse 31 of our passage, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, there may be reasons that we struggle to believe this historical fact. 
We might ask, how do I know that Jesus was really dead? And how do I know that he literally rose again? Aren't there many other simpler explanations than death and resurrection? Or maybe there are other questions we ask. Maybe I say, well, the main way we know this is through the Bible. And can I really trust the Bible when there seems to be so much in the Bible that is out of step with what I know and think and value today? Or maybe we think, well, this, this is really a story about God. And can I really trust God given the things that have happened in my life? And so we may wrestle with these questions. And if so, they are legitimate questions to ask. But God has given us the answers to these questions in his word, if you will look for them. See, belief is not blind faith in something that is untrue or illogical. It is believing what God has done in Christ and told us in his word, even though we weren't there in person. And so if you have these questions, I'd urge you, to come and and talk to me or another pastor or another godly Christian. There are good answers. Seek them that you might believe. But in addition to the factual part of belief, there is a personal aspect to belief, and that becomes clear in Thomas' response to Jesus in verse 28. Because you notice there when Thomas went and put his fingers in the nail holes in Jesus' hands and put his hand in Jesus' side, he didn't respond by saying, well, you know what? I guess it's true. You're alive. That would perhaps be an intellectual response to Jesus' resurrection, but that's not what Thomas says. He says, my Lord and my God. That is Thomas' personal expression of love and submission and worship. You see, in order to have the peace of the resurrected Jesus, in order to have life in his name, we need both intellectual assent. Yes, that's true. But we also need to know Jesus personally to give ourselves and our lives to him as our Lord. As a church, we recently began supporting a missionary named Shabu Uman. Shabu is from India. Church history, in fact, tells us that this very apostle, Thomas, that we are reading about, after the ascension of Jesus, took the gospel to India. And Shabu is from a province in India that still identifies as Christian and traces its lineage back to Thomas, the apostle, coming and preaching the gospel to them. Shabu said, you know, I grew up considering myself a Christian. After all, I was from the Christian province, so I wasn't a Hindu or a Muslim. But Christianity and Jesus were an association for me, not a personal hope of salvation. Until one day, a friend of his, a fellow Indian believer, said to him, but Shabu, do you know Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Have you personally given yourself to him? Have you submitted to him and what he calls you to do? That, said Shabu, is the day that I realized I had not yet believed in Jesus. And that was the day that changed my life. And there may be some in the same place here this morning. You are willing to say, yes, I think in history it is more likely than not that Jesus rose from the dead. You may say, I go to church at least fairly frequently. I'm not an atheist, Muslim, or a Jew, and therefore I identify as a Christian. Maybe you abide by the morals of Christianity. But the question is, do you know Jesus personally? 
See, there may be some here who have doubts about Jesus or Christianity, but your doubts are not really intellectual. Your doubts are moral. Your doubts have to do with the questions like this. Do I really want to submit to Jesus and follow him? Do I really want to? Am I really willing to obey God's word? Or do I want to retain my freedom to think and live as I want and as fits the culture today? If that is where you are this morning, I can't give you a book to answer your doubts. I can only remind you of what is at stake. Life and death. Under the judgment of God or under the gracious forgiveness of God. I can only plead with you. Do not ignore the kindness of God in sending his son to death for your sake. Do not ignore the kindness of God in giving us his word that we might know Jesus and what he has done for us. Do not disbelieve, but believe that you might have life in his name. Give yourself to him. Give your whole self to him in worship and love and obedience. And join Thomas in saying, my Lord and my God. Because that is the prerequisite of peace. We've seen Jesus' offer of peace. Peace with God. The peace of God. We've seen the prerequisite of peace. Believing in his name. But before we end, I want to draw your attention finally this morning to our response to Jesus' peace. You see, in verse 21, the disciples responded with faith and with joy. But then Jesus gave them a response. He said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now we might wonder, well, what does it mean that Jesus has sent us? What what has he sent us to do? And in verses 22 and 23, Jesus clarifies what he is sending his disciples to do and how they are to do it. Now these verses notoriously raise questions, but I'll cut to the chase for the sake of time here. In verse 22, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the reason that this raises questions is you might be thinking, no, wait a second, I thought the Holy Spirit didn't come until after Jesus was ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 2. And you are correct about that. John does not have his facts wrong here. He is not indicating the coming of the Holy Spirit with power. Rather, Jesus breathes on his disciples, hearkening back to Genesis chapter 2 when God breathed new life into Adam in order to symbolize the new life that comes to his disciples through the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus and to indicate that their strength, their ability to carry out this mission would come through receiving the Holy Spirit, which would happen in power in just a few weeks' time. Then in verse 23, Jesus clarifies what the disciples' mission was. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness for any, it is withheld. Now this verse raises questions as well because it sounds at first like Jesus is giving the disciples the authority themselves to decide whether someone will be forgiven or not. But the Greek here, along with the parallel passage in Luke, make it clear that the disciples were not to forgive sins or declare someone unforgiven on their authority, 
The church dare never make themselves or their pronouncements the standard. Rather, the disciples' mission was to proclaim the gospel and to to declare with authority the fact that whoever believes in the good news of Jesus Christ will be forgiven through him, while those who reject the gospel will not be forgiven. And so the mission of every disciple of Christ is to be sent into the world to declare the good news of forgiveness in Christ and to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. To put it another way, from the moment of Jesus' resurrection, the good news of what Jesus came to accomplish was not to be kept to ourselves, but we are now sent ones. Jesus calls every one of us, just as the Father sent me, so that my whole identity has been wrapped up in accomplishing the task that the Father sent me to do. So I have now sent you, so that your mission is wrapped up in going to the world as representatives of Jesus Christ to take the good news of salvation in his name. Harry Reeder is a pastor in our denomination, and he once said that he wished that on the outside of every door into their church building would be the words, welcomed into the presence of God. And you would read that as you came into the church. But then on the inside of every door going out of the church would be the words sent into the world so that you would leave church remembering this commission that Jesus gave us. And I think this reminder is particularly important for every Christian right now. See, it may seem to us like the foundations are being destroyed all around us. It may seem like the world is turning against the Bible and its teaching like Christians are likely to be attacked and opposed for talking about Jesus or holding to biblical truth. And so it might seem like the best decision would be to withdraw from the world and and stay within ourselves. But as the old proverb says, a ship is most safe in the harbor, but ships were not built to stay in the harbor. See, God has called us to be sent into the world. And in America right now, there are more people than ever before who do not know what Jesus came to do and do not know the offer of salvation to any who believes in him. And so anyone who is a disciple of Jesus has been sent to take the good news of Jesus Christ into the world. And so our response to Jesus' offer of peace, remember he leaves us with peace, And it is because of the peace he leaves us in the strength of the Holy Spirit he has sent to us that we are to now go to tell the gospel to any who will listen. Well, as we come to the end this Easter morning, what is our conclusion? Well, first and foremost, our conclusion is Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Given our sin, his resurrection could have been a moment of judgment and wrath against all who had rejected him and abandoned him. But instead, his resurrection was the moment of bringing peace. Not just five minutes peace in the bathtub from the chaos of breakfast, but peace with God, the forgiveness of sins, the peace of God, a settled, unthreatened state of heart and mind because the God of the universe has loved us 
and has proven his love for us to the point of sending his own son to death for our sake. And so for every one of us here this morning, I would ask and I would urge just one thing. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Give yourself wholly in love and worship and faith to Jesus. And then go tell the world of the glory of the one who died for us and has risen again, that they too might have the peace of God and life in his name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for Jesus Christ. How we thank you for this morning of resurrection. How we thank you that because of your resurrection, we have the offer of peace, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and the peace of knowing that the Almighty God of the universe is for us through Jesus Christ, his Son. And how I pray that we might believe intellectually, yes, that Jesus was the Son of God, that he really died, that he really rose again on our behalf, but that we would also believe personally, giving ourselves, our whole hearts, our whole minds, our whole selves to such a wonderful Savior, and that in giving ourselves to him, we would now go and declare the good news of salvation, that more and more people might find life and hope and peace in you to the glory of your name. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.